0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Panic edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. We were just talking about your parent company writing down billions of dollars worth of media assets. We might talk about that later. Cool. I'm to- I'm joined by Anna Shemansky, Hello. who is the only person in the studio who does not work for a media company. She's <laughs> feeling quite snug yes. about yes. this, and we are also joined by the one and only Josh Durangle. Hi, Josh. Hello, Felix. Um, Josh, it has had a storied career in the content business, um, including many years at Time, Inc., editor of Business Week, and now Something, Something at Vice.
1: That is the official title, yes. (laughs)
0: Um, And also has a fabulous executive producer credit on a movie that we are going to talk about. So um, it's going to be a media-heavy... Episode this week. We're going to talk about whether financial media, we're going to talk about whether media in general, and we're going to talk about whether the media just, or we're going to talk a little bit about the financial crisis and the media and the intersection thereof, um, especially in the light of this doc. So, all of that is coming up on Slate Money
2: but there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: Let's start with this movie. It's called Panic, and it's Um, And I watched it on HBO and it was produced by Josh Durangle and it is something to do with Vice. And there are many brands going on here. And you managed to get lots of important people on the telly to talk about the financial crisis.
1: That is all true. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, basically this came about because Vice has an agreement with HBO. We produce a nightly newscast for them. Uh, And we also produce specials for them. And about a year ago, Richard Plepler, who is the CEO of HBO, um, had this idea largely motivated in a good old-fashioned sort of sense of duty to engage HBO with people in complicated ideas. He wanted to talk about the financial crisis. He knew the 10-year anniversary was coming up. Obviously, there would be no other journalism about the 10-year anniversary crisis. (laughs) Um, So I found myself sitting in a room with Richard, Tim Geithner. Uh, Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke and discussing- As you do. As it was Tuesday. As it, <laughs> so we just sort of sat down and talked about what it would be, how it could work. It was a uh, very interesting and often quite contentious conversation. Um, I will say that the three of them both wanted to talk about the decisions that they had made to defend some of those decisions, to reflect on those decisions. But also had parameters around them, and as any good journalist, my job was to provoke all of those parameters, knock them down, discover where the where they felt very strongly, where they didn't, Um, and I I think that uh, of the three, there was not an even distribution of eagerness around this project.
0: (laughs) So why? Yeah. So tell me the first thing, like in terms of the contentiousness of the discussion, was there any? Um, contentiousness between them, or were they a uh, unified like?
1: No, I think there was there were there were differences. Um, there were certainly differences of opinion, although they came together um, and were recruited as one. Um, I think that Hank, you know, their their roles and their arguments were very consistent with how they performed ten years ago. Hank was very much out in front and said let's revisit this, even though it gives me nightmares, let's talk about it, let's figure it out, let's make sure people understand why we made the decisions we made. Um, Tim was uh, very much a little bit more recessive, wanted to talk through each one of the nits that Hank was willing to pick. And Ben was really exceedingly careful, as you would expect, of your (laughs) Fed chairman. Um, And to the point that, you know, he was, well, why would you want to talk about Trump and Steve Bannon? And I said, "Well, well, you can't talk about the financial crisis without talking about populism and what it's wrought. And only now, 10 years later, part of the reason to do this is to actually look back and see everything that's cascaded. And he and I got into a very heated argument about whether that was a fictitious argument, whether I was making things up, whether it was real. His his case, which is obviously rooted in some (laughs) academic thought, he's not a dumb guy, is that You don't attribute the financial crisis directly to the rise of Donald Trump because there have been things going on in the American economy for decades that presaged it. Inequality, free credit, all those things, and that he thought I was trying to simplify it. I told him I'm not at all trying to simplify it. I'm trying to provoke from him the answer he would give to an audience. And so it was a very productive, but also I exited that meeting thinking, well, this isn't going to happen. That was unpleasant for them, and uh, that's part of my job, but they don't need to do it. Gradually, we all got on the same page. Uh, We recruited a director. And I think Richard's initial impulse, which, you know, obviously we call it the untold story because you have to call things something. um, But the (laughs) idea Despite the
0: fact that it was pretty much the told story.
1: Well, it depends. It was not told by all of those people in the same way simultaneously (laughs) at the (laughs) same time on the record. And there is something to be said for 10 years later. George Bush sounds a lot different. Mm. Um, he's very candid. <laughs> yes. He's much more candid. It, was,
0: it was good le- hearing from him on the record about the crisis was something I hadn't heard.
1: Yeah. And look, even Obama, who is protecting a $30 million book asset, um, came clean in ways that I hadn't really expected him to, particularly around this sort of famous cabinet meeting with John McCain. I will say the, the willingness of everyone who participated to essentially treat John McCain as a pinata, we actually <laughs> yep. pulled we pulled back on that. Um, But those interviews were conducted while John McCain was still alive. And I don't think that people's opinions would have changed. Again, part of going back 10 years later is that people now see the moment when McCain halted his campaign, said he was flying back in to save the day with a plan and then didn't have one. There was still obvious offense taken at that move by Nancy Pelosi, by Josh Bolton, by George Bush.
0: By Barack Obama.
1: By Barack Obama, who, um, you know covered his irritation fairly well but it's it's rare for obama to even say he's irritated so i feel we can back the untold part of untold story you cynical bastards Um, so yeah i mean i think that's what it's about is it is it ultimately we did we were able to get all these people to really say what they were thinking in the moment and to address this big question is was this a such a colossal failure of the intersection of the technocrats the bankers and the governors, that it led to what we're in now. So,
0: so this is my question for you, which is, if you start with having Hank and Tim and Ben in a room, and it's done, you know, very much with and around their cooperation, this becomes their apologia. You were at a time when you're not during the famous Committee to Save the World cover, which I don't think has aged very well. Yeah. And it, it feels a little bit like that.
1: Well, participation is not dictation. I think that's the key for us is that we we wanted their participation because we knew you couldn't really do it without the three of them. We wanted to understand what their motives were because you do actually have to sit down and, and get their opinions and and sort of hear from them who they think is important to speak with. But that doesn't mean they get final cut. And so I did screen it for each of them before they before we did a final cut. I wanted to get both their notes from a sort of perspective having lived inside it make sure that it's fact checked all those things i don't think that they that they would all say they emerge universally happy um one of the things that ben said and we screened it in a very small edit room in washington is well this uh it's very fair it's very rigorous and i can't believe what a tragic figure i am and so (laughs) i think seeing themselves you know you as you guys all know from writing about people Everybody's eager to be written about. There's vanity is is kind of what drives both documentary and journalism. Nobody really calls and thanks you after because no matter how good you think it came out, no matter how well their friends may tell them, you see things that are just always unflattering.
3: I think one of the things that struck me watching this is that in a lot of ways, it should have been chapter one that the technocrats came in and saved the banks, rescued the financial system. That should have just been the start. But somehow – and, and I feel like Bush, the interviews with Bush and the interview with Obama in the, in the movie made this clear. They abdicated to these three guys and they did a perfectly, I mean, you could debate it. They did a, an OK job. It was fine, you know, whatever. But there should have been lots more done and there just wasn't. And so... You have this long story of what these three men heroically did, blah, 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 Hank Paulson throwing up, all that. It's,
0: it's, and then
1: there's nothing. The blurb, there's nothing. The blah, blah, blah for the blurb. <laughs> <laughs> but it and was then, also the whole, know, like,
0: Elon Musk heroically, I, I'm i so heroic that I don't sleep. There's a lot of, like, talking about yes, heroically yes. not sleeping. It
3: shouldn't be that the, the financial crisis is the story of three technocrats that were called in and everyone kind of stepped back and said, tell us what to do. Like, when you look at the Great Depression, there was, they, they rescued the banks and they they shored up the financial system. Then they passed regulations to make sure that stuff didn't happen again. And they did a lot of other stuff um, to make sure that Americans still cared about being Americans and didn't, you know, walk away um, disenchanted with the system. And there was an utter failure to do that part. So the the story, I'm just thinking the whole time, like, what's next? Do more. Well, okay. Do
4: more. Well, one thing I would say. Probably we did a bit of a better job this time and after the Great Depression in a lot of other ways. Um, But I think to me what was interesting was less what they were actually saying, like what they wanted to get across and just kind of thinking of it in the larger context of the things that they're still saying that they don't quite understand. by, By which I mean, you know, Paulson has this line that they just didn't explain themselves well. And I feel like, and this is something I have heard him say over and over again. And to me, none of them were able to fully acknowledge that two contradictory things were true at the same time. One, this was necessary, I think, what they did. Two, it was completely unfair and there is no way to justify it. And both of those things are true.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and look, they, it haunts them, obviously, because they don't want to be thought of as people who sold out America. I think we can't really understand what it's like to go through an airport in the years after those moments as Hank Paulson. But I imagine it wasn't pleasant. That said, you know, they fault it as a sort of failure to communicate. What would have been the right way to communicate it? Because so my, had, my
0: view is that this like the, the big failure here was Bush, that like Bush was basically invisible for the entire yes. financial crisis when you needed that, you know, the leader of the country to step yes. up and lead the country yes. and if you watch his interviews it's like well that's what leadership is is saying yes to the treasury secretary when yes. he ask you for something no it's more than just <laughs> saying yes to hank Paulson. you know
3: it was a total abdication on his part it was like the culmination of you know a bad a bad president
4: well and he also wasn't <laughs> willing to ever admit that his policies had something to do with yes. it yes He was just like, oh, they made bad decisions. And you're like, well, if someone had been watching them.
0: (laughs) And and you can say the same thing about Bernanke, right? That he kept interest rates way too low and he was way too accommodative for way too long. He didn't see it coming. It's the job of the Fed to see those systemic risks coming.
1: Yeah, look, I think think that's all correct. I also, to me, what was interesting about getting them together was actually to hear them relive the pressure cooker. And, And the one thing that I will cut them some slack on is that as we get into the fall of september 2008 everybody is abdicating george bush obviously is abdicating he's like well this stuff i don't uh, well,
0: money all of a sudden, nobody knows how that well i don't know how any of this works no, no, by, all... the, by the way the first president to have an mba right but but somehow <laughs> That's
3: so perfect
1: everybody in that. government is an unfrozen caveman lawyer they're all it's all very sophisticated and so the sequence you know i uh, as the director John Madgie and I were talking about, it's like, it is a little bit for these three guys, like a haunted house movie. Every time you think you move to a new room and you're safe, there's something else that creeps in, and everybody's like, "Well, why can't you just get out of the room, guys? What's wrong with you?" So uh, we wanted to bring out some of that. The um, only
0: apology that I heard in the um movie, the only time anyone said, "Yeah, I kind of fucked up there," was John Mack. Interestingly enough he was like yeah when i was running morgan stanley we took on way too much risk and that was wrong and we should not have done it but no one else mm-hmm. seems to think they did anything wrong
1: yeah i don't think you're going to hear anybody involved in the crisis saying that no. i just don't um some of that is the types of people who go into these businesses to begin with and some of it is now that we have been through the ringer and even though that everybody seems to have escaped prosecutorial blame There is a cultural cost for having been a part of this. And you can say that maybe Bush doesn't pay it as much as the three guys we put at the center of the film and other people don't. But I I don't think that they're I don't think that they're ignorant of that weight. I just think that the type of people they are is never going to lead them to say, well, I can alleviate that weight by apologizing for this role.
4: Well, one of the things I actually found most interesting was how the Republicans came off in this. Because they did not come off well. But it's not just that they came off poorly. It's that, to me, this was really the connection with Donald Trump, which is that the moment when you see that Boehner and Bush cannot control their own party Mm. members, to me, that was when you're seeing that this break, this real split between the Republicans of what we have now and the kind of old guard Republicans.
1: Yeah, and I think part of the reason that McCain gets it so bad from both the right and the left in this movie is that there's an, there's a sort of conflation of that moment with Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. Is that McCain, by virtue of turning this into a campaign issue without having any real solution, by virtue of unleashing Sarah Palin simultaneously, I think you, if you poked those guys, you, they, you would hear from them that he unleashed the monster. Yeah, Paulson
3: kind of does shade um, Palin a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> a little. I mean, it's a lot for him, but not a normal person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should watch the documentary and see what I mean.
0: Th- th- thank you for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The um, Josh, what, what's the name? What. Uh, available on HBO Go, HBO Now, and HBO all Go, other HBO.
1: Yeah. HBO Now, HBO Linear, HBO <laughs> Ocho, HBO—all the HBOs.
0: <laughs> it is available. It's very um, entertaining, and mm-hmm. it's called Panic. So, um Panic and run into the sea.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: So this was a major undertaking piece of financial journalism, this documentary. Um, I'm going to come out and ask because I'm fascinated by the economics of financial journalism. What was the budget on this?
1: None of your beeswax. <laughs> um, I'm going to I'm going to actually take issue with you as a person who has overseen major financial journalism. This is not that. This is, documentary filmmaking is sort of the very last place I would try to do financial journalism. Largely because financial journalism is so dull and unglamorous, and ultimately. It is vested in your ability to piece together numbers and the people who put them there. This, to me, is a documentary about a moment in time. It's, it's much more a historical documentary than a financial journalism documentary. Um, that said, did we, did we have margin on it? Yes, but that's what we do. Um, my company is essentially a studio. And so we have a series of assets. Because we're on the Slate Money podcast, I will call human beings assets. <laughs> These are fine craftspeople. And so they are able to work on multiple projects simultaneously. And there's a very good synchronicity between a nightly newscast and a documentary that takes six months to produce. Um, The guys who designed the titles, for instance, on the film work every day making graphics and motion animation for the nightly show. Um, For a director like John Maggio, who came in and sort of sat in the middle of the studio the ability to have all of these people available to you at any time to help troubleshoot made the thing work a lot faster. And so for our business, a lot of what I would like us to continue doing is having this baseline of a nightly show uh, and more series, but then also take on these big projects where I, you know, I learn a ton from the people who come in. Our people get to stretch their, their wings a little bit and make a different thing. So it, it's exactly what we ought to be doing as a business.
0: Okay, so if this isn't financial journalism, then um and and this is kind of what passes for the future of media these days. Um what's what what's happened to financial journalism? I was having this conversation this weekend actually with a friend from the Wall Street Journal. Um you know, has it do you think it's got better? He was making the case that in general the quality of financial journalism over the past You know, call it 10 years, has actually improved substantially from the sort of um, halcyon, highly profitable pre-internet days.
1: I, I think that's true. I mean, I think two things sort of became clear at the same time. One is that people are always going to pay for indispensable content, and there's nothing more indispensable than facts about the banking industry. And they have the money to pay for it, right? So the Bloomberg journalism model is a very effective model. At the same time, I think people understood who are working in financial journalism in part because of the crisis that it had failed to engage general readers and so there was a real premium put on craft prose packaging all these things that for a layman who had very very easily ignored the markets pages or the business section of the new york times suddenly business journalism made more of an effort to reach them and they made more of an effort to understand it so i think those two things both happened and we have better, more interesting financial journalism, it doesn't change what undergirds all of it, which is it's really hard. Understanding the way the financial system works, understanding the way economics works, it's very different than other forms of journalism. And so without that kind of rigor, it all falls apart. But I do think it's gotten better.
3: I don't know if it's gotten better if you look at um, tech journalism as a part of business and finance journalism, because I think for many years everyone just worshiped these companies and you know now that's coming home to roost but the coverage was pretty adoring and not it as everyone, skeptical everyone worshipped as it should have been
0: Goldman Sachs pre-crisis yeah as well. it was the
3: same it was that coverage applied to a new industry that was looked at as sort of like the savior industry like we're banks are bad now but tech is good now and that went on for a long time and now we're in a place where Like everything's kind of bad, which is probably good for journalism in a way, but um, doesn't really get finance journalism off the
4: hook. I'm always interested in terms of thinking who a lot of financial journalists are really trying to target, because I often find that I mean, definitely in The New York Times and honestly, even in The Wall Street Journal, that it's. A little bit of scratching the surface in a way that I think people who are actually in the industry might find interesting, but it's not something they're going to like use.
0: Yeah, I think I think this idea that financial journalism is is necessary and actionable for professionals, especially in places like the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, or New York Times. I think this has always been overstated, mm-hmm. and I think actually. Even at Reuters and Bloomberg, it's been overstated. that The thing that the professionals need is the prices. They don't actually need the news. There is, however, this weird history when it comes to terminals and and information products. If you go back through um, Knight Ridder and Telerate and all these other places, if you're just a pure terminal and you don't have any news, you always seem to fail. And I'm not entirely sure... How that works, but on a certainly on a story by story basis, um, you know, there's a few sort of super in the weed trade publications which people genuinely need, but beyond that, most of what we see and most of what we talk about is for you know, it's not for the insiders. It's for it's I for a much broader. group I mean, than that.
3: consumers, i.e., human people who buy stuff, need to understand what's going on with the companies they give all their money to. I think if that, that should be sort of your foundational principle for financial and business journalism. You're trying to shine light on companies that are deeply involved in people's lives. And if you're just writing stories or reporting news just to satisfy some need for information for the people who work in finance, then you're probably kind of failing.
4: Well, I mean, I think there are Different audiences. I mean, I agree with you that I do think it would be nice if people had sometimes maybe a little bit more literacy about how finance actually works, because often it's actually not as complicated as people think it is. Oh, um, that, that's that, Anna that throwing that a lot of shade,
2: by the way.
0: No, but yeah. that was that was my um, my my big problem during the crisis is that there was this weird ukase which came down from I think it was Josh, uh, <laughs> probably where where. Yeah. where where there was this rule that whenever you used the word derivatives, you needed to pre- prepend it with the word complex. <laughs> and, and there were lots of these derivatives were not complex, no. and a lot of them weren't even derivatives. But like, you yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, look, I, what's amazing to me is that all trades, as we know, are conspiracies against the laity. And this is like a triple conspiracy. <laughs> like for people who can't communicate nominally they continue to make it harder and harder and harder in expert ways that only a great communicator would know how to do and so you get things like complex derivatives and synthetic derivatives and then you get you know a few years ago a movie like the big short and sure enough i don't know 50 great words and a celebrity in a bathtub and people seem to understand enough to follow the plot so there there was definitely a willfulness on the part of the industry to make it hard and there was a sort of passiveness on the part of journalists when it came to explaining it.
4: Well, that- I, don't, I think I sometimes think the idea that people in finance are like actively trying to think, make things complicated so that other people won't understand, I just don't entirely think
0: is accurate. Oh, it's accurate. I don't know. Like I, someone I on the receiving end, I, like the number of times that people, you know, s- just throw a whole bunch of jargon at me and I have to say, okay, slow down. No, but that's often because
4: they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I I quite literally think it's often because a lot of these products, nobody really (laughs) understands how they're created. So I'm not saying that people aren't trying to sometimes make things more complicated than they actually are. And so that people will just kind of turn away. But I also think part of it is just a lot of finance. I mean, I may think it's fascinating but I know a lot of people just think it's boring and okay, I think that so, that's actually ultimately part of it too. But
0: this is this is the other big question I have for Josh which is um you're talking about how people used to throw away the business section of the newspaper and I always thought that was a feature rather than a bug. Like I <laughs> I always believed that there was a good reason why the business section was a separate section it was precisely so that it was easy to throw away because ultimately there was very little in there that anyone really needed to know if they were a normal person. And when people would come up to me and say, you need to address this, like, why should I care question, I would be like, no, I don't. Because honestly, you probably don't need to care. And knowing about this isn't going to help you. And if you're interested in it, I will explain it to you clearly. And if you're not interested in it, you can throw away the section. I feel that changed during the crisis, people really cared. During the crisis, and what my question is 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 now that we're ten years post crisis, um, is it okay for people to start throwing away that section, or should we feel bad if they do?
1: Well, I'm not going to tell anybody how to feel. <laughs> That's just not my my lane. I think what what it exposed though is something relevant, which is for smart people, who people we know, people we hang out with. It was very easy to dismiss business because it was a it was just this monolithic block and you you engaged with business when you needed to buy something or have a transaction or maybe get a mortgage but business is actually how the world works. Let's say let's let's go into graduate student territory and say we're in late capital. Well, it's everywhere. Understanding how business works is understanding how the world works. How it influences government, how it influences your daily life. And to the point about tech being part of business and finance you know tech had some pretty great publicists for a really long time the magic has worn off and now part of tech journalism becoming so important is that it is such a role in how we live our lives how the world works so i i'm not a big believer in arbitrary declarations of human progress we can always slide back as we've seen but i do think in in american culture The advancement of business journalism has actually helped people understand things about the world that they didn't previously understand. So if they want to throw it away, they can throw it away. But I think they're going to be missing out because there has been some progress. Business journalism has reached out. Um, It's made things a little easier to understand. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be for everybody. But I do think we've improved.
5: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
0: And now the bloodbath. And now the bloodbath. Okay. So, um, Josh, explain the bloodbath. What What, what is the duopoly? Uh,
1: the <laughs> duopoly is Google and Facebook, and it is their ability to suck down all of the advertising revenue and, in a way, uh, be a layer between all of the content and all of the users. That is as swift as I can put it.
0: And what has this meant for... Um, the media business and for journalism
1: it hasn't meant good things in general um it is not a benevolent duopoly um meaning that the two companies that we're speaking of didn't say oh my gosh look at the consequences of what we're doing we better speak to these media companies and ensure that they are able to reap enough revenue from what we're doing so that they can pay all other people and continue to do a great service uh for the american people what it's meant instead is and i'm going to go backward here for a minute um I don't think that journalism and media companies largely are famous for the quality of their business leadership with a few <laughs> exceptions. And so uh, what it's meant is that a lot of people have gotten suckered in over the the course of my entire, unfortunately, my entire career into this belief that scale is the thing and that these tech companies will give us scale and the revenue will follow and everything's going to be great and we're just going to grow and grow and grow. Um, the tech companies were very seductive in the way that they positioned that as a thing that would happen And it really hasn't happened. And so a lot of companies have found themselves out over the cliff and the duopoly is holding all their belongings and they are beginning to fall. Um, And so we're seeing massive consolidation, particularly among newer players, because they just can't afford to exist. It's really that simple. Now, there's a lot of complicating factors in there, including does anybody click on digital ads? Is there any point in scale if you can't monetize it? but i think that's where we are in the late fall of 2018
0: i think i think that people um number one it doesn't matter to some extent whether people click on digital ads because they never clicked on newspaper ads either um that kind of um turning of brand advertising into direct response advertising i think has always been has been part of the problem but i think we have seen the invention of the greatest ad product that the world has ever seen in Instagram. And people do click on those ads and Kylie Jenner became a billionaire, apparently, so we're told, basically just by putting things on Instagram and selling them. So that's great for her. But that's not a media business, and no media companies, as far as I can make out, have been able to monetize via Instagram.
3: I have the same thought. I've been thinking about this so much about Facebook, which is they are this massive—they scaled. They make tons of money from advertising on the backs, largely, of all the content that we are producing, especially me at HuffPost. Like, we give them the content, they show it to millions of people, and then they get all the money for it, plus they get all the information about our readers— That we don't don't have and they don't share with us. It's a it's basically like a huge scam. (laughs) And the media companies just let themselves be ripped off. They went up to Facebook and they're like, here are all our users. Enjoy. And then Facebook made billions of dollars off of them. And now these companies are going out of business. It's really
4: I think in this ultimately is the problem is that you have, you know, Google and Facebook are monetizing. The content produced by others yes. and then also not being liable for any of that content, yes. whereas the and you and <laughs> I think hopefully we will get to a point where we realize like that's just not okay, not okay. that system cannot continue for many reasons
1: yeah, and, and so much of it is dependent on this distinction between being a platform and being a publisher and so as a publisher, if I want to tonight use five seconds of Led Zeppelin right just to put under a music bed for something, that's going to cost me. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's going to cost me a couple of jobs, right? I could go on YouTube right now and play the whole album, and the difference there really is this distinction. As a publisher, I am responsible not only for the accuracy of what I give you, because there are legal consequences if it's inaccurate. I'm responsible for paying the people whose IP I use. If you're a platform, somehow it's not not a concern. Now in Europe, that's obviously going to be challenged, but there are all these sorts but of.
0: But Led that gets a little tiny few cents every time you stream that no no no, no. i'm not
1: talking about legal streams i'm talking about the fact that on Ledza, on youtube right now i could go basically find any hilarious al pacino line from any movie right because it has been uploaded by someone and everybody's decided oh copyright claim they never move so quickly and so you can get it all there you can get basically the infinite jukebox of human media is available to you if you want to go look for it but if i were to do that I'm at a severe disadvantage. So there's all these just incredible uh, inefficiencies in this system that have led to a place where the duopoly is not some sort of phony cry from media companies that are struggling. It is a real, real thing.
4: Yeah, And I think that when you're thinking of ways that media can compete, to me, the idea of just trying to get bigger and somehow that's going to be how you compete, I think is impossible. As as you said, partly also, if you think about the amount of data that Facebook and, and Google already have, mm-hmm. you can't just start like collecting it now. It doesn't no. make any sense. So to me, I mean, if you look at historically the way that monopolies were challenged, it wasn't just by like smaller firms becoming more competitive. It was because you had regulations. It was because you had changes. And to me, that is what is going to have to happen.
3: Right. And we just have to change the conception of what's considered monopolistic, right, because we're still relying on. Yeah. Apparently, Robert Bork's conception of what a monopoly is, um, which is basically if it costs consumers more money, it's bad. But with these companies, you have to change that that calculus because it doesn't cost consumers anything. We, or we will, to argue that we will that, revisit yeah, this whole no.
0: question of hipster antitrust, I think in a, in, a, in a future <laughs> episode. But I want to talk about this idea that like growing bigger was the way to survive in the age of the duopoly because that is something that. HuffPo absolutely embraced. That is something that Vice absolutely embraced. That is certainly something that um HuffPo's parent, Verizon, has been embracing by buying AOL and buying Yahoo and saying what we need is scale, what we need is scale. And then now I kind of feel like people are having second thoughts about that, as is evidenced by the fact that Verizon just wrote off $4.6 billion of the 10 billion it spent on AOL and um Yahoo.
3: Well, I don't feel entirely comfortable speaking about the <laughs> decisions of my corporate overlords, um, but I think everyone's rethinking the scale, um, the scale strategy As that's why we're seeing so many, pro- so many editorial products go um, behind paywalls, right? It seems like almost everyone at this point, business insiders behind a paywall, Vanity Fair, there is talk of others, I won't say who, also <laughs> going behind a paywall, because at least you can get people to pay money for this stuff that seems to be the way to go. Classic kind of business strategy where you make a thing and then sell the thing. That seems to be, we're returning to that.
1: Yeah. It? You know, I, I think that's 100% right. It only <laughs> took 15 years for us to realize that you can't mm, give a thing away and hope away. for the best. Yeah. <laughs> but I will tell you, I still every day run into people working particularly on the digital side, not just within Vice, but everywhere who are sort of the equivalent of the guy running the restaurant that nobody comes to, but they refuse to change the menu. Because... Otherwise, we won't be able to grow. It's like, right, but traffic and revenue are very different things. And thus far, we've been unable to achieve any sort of relationship between the two. Yeah. So ultimately, what what I like about the moment we're in is that there is this dawning business clarity, which is very gratifying for a content maker, which is that you have to make a thing that people are willing to pay for. They have to invest their time in it. They have to invest their interest in it, because despite this great boom in content making... There's a sort of immutable relationship. It's a ratio that never changes. The ratio between great stuff and shit, Mm -hmm. right? You can make a ton of stuff. It doesn't mean the ratio changes. And still, it's incredibly challenging to make a thing that's really, really good. And so for content makers, getting rid of all these distractions about, "No, no, no, make it here, make it here, make it here. No, just focus on making something so good people will pay for it. And then you'll get to do it again the next day.
0: And keep it. And that's and that's what people are beginning to do on Patreon and you know small sort of like listener supported podcasts and there there is a a sense or even just like single person newsletters like Ben Thompson's Stratechery and stuff like that you can make good money as an individual like selling um, subscriptions to a relatively low budget podcast or newsletter or something like that um, and then from the legacy media, if you have an incredible brand which has been around for decades or centuries, if you're The New York Times or The Economist or The Financial Times, you can start charging a lot you know hundreds of thousands of people for that, and they're willing to pay um I guess my question is, is there a new media version where like you can do this on a business scale rather than just an individual scale by new media do you mean i mean non legacy
1: yeah, I mean. Sure doesn't look like anybody's, you know, roaring to the front
0: when yeah, it comes to that.
3: Business Insider.
0: They they have like three subscribers.
3: No, I think they're doing well. In I don't have the data. Okay, I don't know <laughs> okay. the data, but it does seem like they are bucking trends. There's there's people read Business Insider, and I I know that people do sometimes pay for subscriptions. Do you, do you to know a, a,
0: an actual paying subscriber to Business Insider?
3: Well. I think Oath, my parent company that just did the write down, I think they pay for a corporate subscription and I would suspect others, other corporations pay for a corporate subscription. So I feel like they are a new media technically product that might make it through, actually, hmm. because they have a specialty business that mm-hmm. there is a corporate interest in, sometimes learning new and information about. And just to about. bring
0: this f- full circle. This idea of like being an insider and having the untold story—it <laughs> drives me up like, I I used to tell Henry every time I saw him that he should call him, himself business outsider rather than business insider <laughs> because that was like that was why you wanted it. That was his value proposition: was we're going to be your outsiders telling you, you know, the truth tellers rather than the people on the inside who are giving you like you know the spin. I don't understand the attraction of insider as a brand.
1: Yeah. I mean,
3: really? Well, I, yes, you do. <laughs> I,
1: I, yeah. I, I, look, I think that what Insider and a, a handful of others have shown, and I think Gawker to the extent that it remained disciplined with, you know, within its content is that people still like good stuff. And what was fascinating to me about the Gawker experiment was that they knew when they were onto something, they knew that Deadspin had a tone that nothing else in sports did. They knew that Gawker was a unique voice. And so unique voices still stand a shot. I think what we're seeing is that business leadership is finally catching up a little bit and not to go all the way back 10 years again. But, you know, I was at Time Inc. at a very important moment in that company's sort of architecture. I was at Time Magazine. I was the deputy managing editor. And my own feeling was Time Magazine, which one week would have crisis in the Middle East and the next week would have back pain, literally (laughs) back to back as cover stories. (laughs) needed to make crucial choices about what it wanted to cover and what voice it wanted to speak to. The one thing that is abundantly clear is that the duopoly isn't a voice, right? The duopoly is a chorus of all these other voices. But you better better pick a pitch you're going to sing in because nobody gets to sing in all of them, including the New York Times. And so we are at a moment where if you can define your voice and your lane really well, you stand a chance because if it's good enough and it's distinct enough, people will pay for it. I look at something very small like Jubilee Media. It's an L.A. team of eight people. And they they call themselves, I met with the CEO, they call themselves the nice vice. And what they do is they shoot stuff very similar to the way we shoot stuff. But it's very, you know, human to human conversations around different issues. They've started to grow and they've got people paying for them. Are they going to be the next Time Warner, the next news corp? No. But- They are making interesting stuff that people are paying for. And I think that, as I said, like the only thing I'm really optimistic about right now is that I have some clarity about what's going to work, really good stuff that people will pay for. And I have now enough evidence to go back to people who might pressure me on the business side to say, but no, 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 go do that. Like, no, you show me one example of that working and then I'll consider it.
0: And the way people pay for you is through HBO subscriptions.
1: Yeah, so we, um, on Vice News Tonight in particular, we have a very strong core audience that comes back night after night after night. And much surprising to me is that they often watch it on linear at 7.30. Is that they they have got this behavior that I thought had sort of died out a long time ago and they are repeating it and repeating it. And so my goal for those people, as it was at Business Week, as it was at its time, is to get as much of their engagement As possible from as many people as possible, because I look at the numbers and I think, oh, okay, well, you know, six, seven hundred thousand people just spent a half hour with us. Who in your life do you spend a half hour with every day or once a week? Right. And so we're doing something right. If those are the metrics we're focusing on, we're never going to be a five million a night viewership. We're inside a walled garden, but also those days are over. So what I'm trying to maximize is a direct relationship with smart people who come back night after night after night. And, you know, HBO was willing to pay for that.
0: And where does this leave the other big news organizations we haven't mentioned at all, which is the television newscasts?
1: Man, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I look at, you know, I get Nielsen's and I look at their numbers and the the numbers haven't gone down, but they just keep moving to the right when it comes to the age Mm, stuff. mm -hmm. And I don't see any real fight changing with them so long as they stick to the same format, Which is three dudes behind a desk, they all air at the same time, they all run essentially the same stories. Like, that feels to me very much like Time Inc. in two thousand seven, which is this belief that oh no, we just get the right to exist for as long as we choose. The next few to drop.
0: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house, I got people camp here, ranks at my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. Oh, okay. Yeah.
4: Okay, my number is 20%. So when I was just kind of looking up various stories about the state of the media, one of the things that a lot of the stories were about was about local news. And I think one of the things that the Trump administration did to affect news that I don't think as many people talked about was when they put a tariff of up to 20 percent on uncoated groundwater paper which was, you know, the paper that you used to make actual newspapers. And this really hurt a lot of small newspapers. You had newspapers like laying people off, cutting down what they could produce, going out of business. Now, thankfully, the U.S. International Trade Commission then came back and said, like, no, actually, we should not have this tariff. So I just thought this was an interesting story, both because it's an instance of where the Trump administration is actually stopping news from being produced. And also just another reason to think about local media, which I actually think local news is often more important than a lot of national news.
0: My number is three, and specifically $3, which is um, the daily cover price now for the New York Times. If you go to a newsstand in New York or Washington, um, it costs you $3 to buy like the Tuesday New York Times, um, which is the inflation rate on that has been insane. And the price insensitivity of what few remaining newsstand consumers there are has been astonishing to behold that people will pay seemingly pretty much any amount of money for that physical newspaper when they want to buy that physical newspaper Mm -hmm. in a way that no one dreamed back when it was you know a quarter or something they were like we need to make sure that as many people read this and so we're going to sort of underprice it turns out they didn't need to do that
4: i saw that i thought this is interesting when the last time i bought physical newspapers was when i was carving pumpkins and I needed newspapers <laughs> and I'm looking at what to buy and I was going to buy. I was going to grab the Times. So I was like, I'm not going to buy this. So I think I bought like four copies of The Post. I was like, why are you Aww. buying all these copies of The Post? I'm like, well. From a
1: color perspective, wouldn't the FT have been the right choice? <laughs> I, yeah, Fair the enough. FT is the way to go.
4: Um,
3: my number is $85 million. That is the combined revenue of the two most popular meditation apps, Ooh. Calm and Headspace. A which... former
0: Slate Money Sponsor, indeed.
3: Oh, okay. Well, apparently they, they're they in a head-to-head kind of meditation app Meditation war. wars. Yeah, and they were both, um, the CEOs of both companies are quoted in the journal kind of like saying mean stuff, calm, mean stuff about each other. <laughs> um, but people pay for these, thir- they cost $13 a month to get a meditation app and people are willing to shell out money for this. So to Josh's point earlier, if they're paying $13 a month for a meditation app, they could shell out a few bucks for some that there, there's there's contact?
0: something people are willing to spend half an hour a day on and yeah. it's just
1: nothing doing doing nothing <laughs> it's it's they're spending on it to get rid of everything so that they have nothing <laughs> that is a good business
0: yeah it is a good
2: business
1: um my number is two and my number is two of the people in the uh, hearing of sundar pachai representatives duly elected by the american people who held up iphones and asked Pachai <laughs> why something didn't work on their iPhones. <laughs> and his his look, and, and, you know, it's hard to feel sympathy for a tech boss in 2018. His look was, are you guys fucking kidding me? How am I going to? And so the reason I bring this up, and I only watched about 40 minutes of this hearing, is that what's clear over the past year is that our elected representatives could not be less qualified to regulate <laughs> yes. technology. And it's gotten to a point where, yes, for a person who puts on a television show every night, it's Fantastic. I mean, the supercuts of these guys, just not, you know, Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg, well, if you don't charge for it, how do you make money? <laughs> and Mark Zuckerberg finally using his shit eating grin for good and saying, <laughs> uh, we advertise, sir. But we're in a place where this, these businesses have a huge role in American life. And it's unbelievable to me. That the regulators don't
0: understand. Can we, it. can we Americans freeload on Margarita Vestager and the Europeans and get them to do all of the regulatory heavy lifting?
1: Well, we have been. I mean, to this point, we really have been. I, what's interesting to me about the current freshman class in Congress is that they have had experience as candidates with social media that their uh, elders have not, and so they are bringing a different kind of knowledge to bear when they enter this body. They have been harassed online. They've seen the power of these platforms. I think all of them are kind of itching to get onto committees where they can talk about these things. But, you know, when you ask, how do we get where we are? It's because we have, you know, an average age of people in their mid-60s to whom technology is so alien that they don't know that Sundar Pichai doesn't make iPhones.
0: On which note, we will wrap up this predictably depressing (laughs) episode of Slate Money. Um, Josh, Thank you very much for um, coming in. We're going to have a Slate Plus segment with you. I think about books. Uh, We're going to see if we can come up with a book recommendation each. Um, Many thanks to both June Thomas and Max Jacobs for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.